let's face it, Austin, Texas, despite what it is we may hear from political forces, is still one of the safest cities in the United States. Hi, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Austin Common Radio Hour. I'm your host, Amy Stansberry, and today is all about crime data and statistics. That's right, we're going to be continuing our series on policing in Austin by taking a closer look at all those numbers and dubious-looking statements that have been flying around on social media. And then we're going to explain them, and if needed, debunk them. So I originally came up with the idea for this episode a few months back when I made the mistake of going on Twitter, which for my own personal sanity, I generally try and avoid. Uh, But anyway, I went on Twitter and I ran into a lot of posts like this one from Texas Governor Greg Abbott back in December of 2020. Quote, U.S. attorney says defunding the Austin Police Department is contributing to the dramatic increase in violent crimes in Austin. The state will fix this. Texas will pass a law this session supporting law enforcement and defunding cities that defund the police, end quote. Or this tweet from November of 2020, also from Governor Abbott, quote, Austin experiences highest number of homicides in 20 years. That is why it is, it is absurd that Austin is defunding the police. It is also why Texas will act to roll back that defunding and consider taking over policing some areas of Austin, end quote. Now, I'm not going to get into the potential legislative action around policing in Texas because that conversation is still ongoing and, quite frankly, not very clear at the moment. But what I do want to focus on is some of the numbers that were thrown around in those posts. Because when I look at them, the first thing that stands out to me is the timing. I know that the new Austin Police Department budget only went into effect in October of 2020, And at least initially, it only included a roughly 5% reduction in APD's budget. So my first thought is that blaming any kind of year-over-year increase in crime on a decision that only impacted the last three months of that year is pretty disingenuous. But I still wanted to dig deeper into the larger claim that Abbott was making, which is that violent crime in Austin is increasing, and that our council's decision to reduce the size of APD's budget is contributing to that. So let's start with the first part of that claim, that violent crime is increasing in Austin. More specifically, Abbott said that in 2020, Austin experienced the highest number of homicides in 20 years. So is that true? The short answer is yes, but with a lot of caveats. Although official numbers have not yet been published on the FBI Uniform Crime Reporting website, Press releases from APD indicate that there were 48 homicides in Austin in 2020, which is more than in any single year over the past 20 years. For reference, last year there were 32 homicides in Austin. So there's definitely been an increase. But here comes the but. (laughs) The number of homicides is not the same as the rate of homicides. Over the past 20 years, Austin's population has increased by 52% our homicide rate has not similarly increased. In fact, our homicide rate in 2020 was 4.8, as in 4.8 murders per 100,000 people. In 2000, the rate was 4.87 with just 32 homicides. So you can see when comparing 2000 to 2020, you have nearly the same homicide rate at about 4.8, but 32 homicides in 2000 and 48 in 2020. That's the difference between a raw number and a rate. Okay, 
Now let's look at the next claim. In another one of Governor Abbott's tweets, he linked to a press conference held by um, U.S. Attorney Greg Sofer, who said that the number of homicides in 2020 was 54% higher than in 2019. Now, there are some slight variations here, depending on what data sets you look at. This press conference was given in November before the year officially ended, and we had year-end homicide numbers. But in general, this is also correct. In 2020, we had 48 homicides in Austin compared to 32 in 2019. But once again, some context is needed here. It's not uncommon to see big jumps in the percentage increase of homicides because there's a lot of fluctuations in homicides from year to year. And also because we have such a relatively low number of yearly homicides that even small changes in raw numbers can lead to big percentage increases. For example, in 2019, there were 32 murders, 34 in 2018, 26 in 2017, and 39 in 2016. Those are some pretty big fluctuations, and through it all, our police department budget was only rising. It's also worth noting that APD has been asked about the rise in murders in 2020 and suggested that it was unfair to blame the jump on recent budget changes. At a press conference in November, Lieutenant Jeff Greenwald explained, quote, I will say that as far as the 2020 numbers, we saw a rise in violent crime in the very early months of 2020, before the reimagine and defunding conversations came up. So those sort of things were happening already, end quote. He then went on to say, quote, so I don't think we can say that the numbers in 2020 are reflective of that issue, end quote. It's also important to note that APD's homicide, aggravated assault, and robbery units were not targeted for any budget decreases. However, Lieutenant Greenwald did note that it's unclear how the upcoming shift in staffing and other APD units might impact their work. Right now, there are 12 detectives and two supervisors in the APD homicide unit, again according to Lieutenant Greenwald. And the last key thing to note here is that 2020 was a pretty unusual year in a lot of ways, and we're still not sure what the cumulative effect of all of it is going to be. One thing that is clear is that murder increased throughout the entire country in 2020. According to NPR, quote, at the end of 2020, Chicago police reported more than 750 murders, a jump of more than 50 percent compared with 2019. By mid-December, Los Angeles saw a 30% increase over the previous year with 322 homicides. There were 437 homicides in New York by December 20th, nearly 40% more than the previous year. End quote. And an analysis by Jeff Asher and AH Datalytics of more than 50 U.S. cities found that murder was up 36.7% in 57 agencies through at least September of 2020. So what should we make of all of this? Last month, I sat down with Bill Spellman, a professor at the University of Texas LBJ School of Public Affairs and a former Austin City Council member to ask him just that. Bill has been studying policing and the relationship between crime statistics and police budgets and staffing for years. Here's what he had to say about the whole murder increase during a pandemic phenomenon. I wrote a, an article a few years ago. Is what, what, what we do as academics, we write articles. But I wrote an article uh, asking the question, why is it that the murder, it looks like of all crime types out there, 
the murder rate is the most responsive to more police officers. And you think it ought to be the least responsive because if you look at who murders who, that it's almost always somebody you know, it's usually somebody in your family or a very close friend or a boyfriend or a girlfriend or an ex-boyfriend or a girlfriend or something like that. It's, it's always an inside job. It's not, it's very rarely a gangland slaying or something happens. It's not a capital murder in the course of doing a robbery, for example, very rare. The vast, vast majority of robberies are, she gets tired of his being drunk and beating her up every night. He pull, she pulls a gun and shoots, that sort of thing. And given that that's what murders are all about, why should more cops have anything to do with that? It happens inside, it happens to people who know each other and so on and so on. And so I put a pencil to it and try to figure out what's going on here. It turns out the, the following is what's going on. We have a lot of murder does respond a little bit to the number of police officers, but the number of police officers respond a lot to the murder rate. So if the murder rate goes up by 10, 20%, then people just go nuts. The murder rate went up, we need to do something. So they hire more police officers. Okay, so they hire more cops, they put them through the academy, they put them on the street. But that increase of 10 or 20 or 30% in the murder rate in most cities is just luck of the draw. It's just random noise. It goes up by 30%, it goes down by 30% because we only got like what, 36 murders in the average year. That means you'd expect it to go up or down by something like 12 just by chance. Well, so it went up by 10. Okay, wow, sounds really awful, but really didn't go up at all. It's just, we had bad luck that year. The next year you expect it to go back to normal. So here we, the murder rate goes up. We hire lots of cops. We put them on the street just in time to take credit for returning to normal. And once you take that out of the equation, it turns out the relationship between cops and crime is almost zero. Between cops and murder rates, it's almost zero as it should be because that's of all the crimes. Robbery, we can do something about. Auto theft, we could definitely do something about. More cops will prevent auto theft. But murder rates, not so much. And I think it's about the pandemic. The big issue about the pandemic is why the murder rate has gone up. Everybody agrees with that. But why has it gone up? It's not because you've got gang members shooting each other in frustration or because there's no police officers responding to scenes of crime. It's you got people who can't go to work, can't go to the bar, can't see their friends. They're stuck at home with their families and every weird little pathology the family's got is magnified by the fact that you can't go out and do anything else. So you've got more people who are just killing each other because they just can't stand the fact that you eat spaghetti and you slurp or you know stupid things like this. And I think it's hard to verify that right now because the, the FBI hasn't released the murder the fine-grained murder statistics that help us understand exactly why the murder rate increased nationwide. But I, I feel strongly about this. At the end of the day, there will be some more gangland stuff. There will be some more capital murder stuff. But the vast majority of the increase in the murder rate is slurping spaghetti. Uh, it's just it's the stupid stuff that happens in families that can't, can't get out. And uh, all of our problems are just being baked let's face it, Austin, Texas, despite what it is we may hear from political forces, is still one of the safest cities in the United States. I just want to take a moment here to expand on one of the things that Bill mentioned, which is that Austin is one of the safest cities in America, which is pretty much true. 
And here's the data that backs that up. PolitiFact from the Austin American Statesman actually published an entire article on this in 2020 after Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick said that, quote, the city of Austin is a disaster if you haven't been there. A great city, now one of the most dangerous cities in America and definitely in Texas, end quote. It was a statement that PolitiFact ruled as pants on fire, offering these key data points to back up their decision. Number one. Austin police reported 3,953 incidents of violent crime in 2019, a rate of about 400 incidents for every 100,000 residents, according to the FBI's Uniform Crime Reporting Program. Among the nation's 30 largest cities that report crime numbers to the FBI database, Detroit topped the list with about 1,965 violent incidents per 100,000 residents, followed by Memphis, Tennessee, Baltimore, and Milwaukee. Austin's violent crime rate of 400 incidents per 100,000 residents ranked 28th among the 30 largest U.S. cities above El Paso and San Diego. Austin ranked near the bottom of that list in 2018 and 2017 as well. And then number three, if you look at only the largest 25 cities in Texas, which are cities with populations the size of Round Rock, 132,747 people or larger. Austin ranked 13th. Houston, Lubbock, Dallas, Corpus Christi, and Amarillo, in that order, are the cities with the highest violent crime rates in Texas. So that's the info behind our crime statistics. But what about the connection between police budgets, police staffing, and public safety more broadly? As Austin continues to reimagine public safety, this is a question that is bound to come up. And while it's true that the APD budget changes are so new, or in some cases haven't even been completely rolled out yet, that it's not fair to say they've had much of an impact on crime statistics. What about the future? What impact might these policies have on our crime rates over the next few years? To answer that question, I consulted Measure a local nonprofit organization whose mission is to use data and education to mobilize communities to eliminate social disparities. They've done a lot of research about policing over the years, and in July 2020, they actually released a report called Public Safety Vision 2020 that answered a lot of my questions. Here's a key finding from their report. Quote, lower police spending does not lead to increased violent crime. A common concern in considering reducing police funding is that the impact on is the impact on violent crime rates. However, the data does not support that concern. Our analysis compared police spending per capita against violent crime rates for the most populous 78 cities, and the findings show that spending less on police is not correlated with increased violent crime. End quote. Now, I don't want to suggest that policing has absolutely no impact on crime rates, but it seems like a lot of the debate today revolves around the fact that police budgets have only been increasing for years and years and years. And people are starting to ask, is the result really worth all that money? And are there other ways that we can ensure the safety of our residents that both don't involve the criminal justice system and provide us with other societal benefits as well? To answer all of these questions, let's go back to Bill. Let's just get you get thirty thousand feet up and take a look. Yeah. Down. What does it happen? What does the police officers actually do all day? 
they drive around in cars looking for trouble and sort of you know showing the flag. Well, there's a police officer out here. Don't get up to anything bad because we're out here looking for you. When they get a call on the radio that something's happened, they try and get there as quickly as they can. And once they get there, they write up a report, hand it to a detective who follows up clues and sometimes catches bad guys. None of these technologies are the slightest bit efficient. They're good ideas. It's good that we do them, but we've, we've been doing them since the 1930s, basically. Uh, the whole patrol car answer, 911 calls, do follow-up investigations and so on. All this stuff hasn't really changed much in almost 100 years. And it's never worked particularly well. Uh, it's extremely rare that a police officer driving around will see something happen while he or she is on the, just driving. When they uh, get to the scene of a crime, even if they do lights and siren and the call is dispatched as quickly as it can, it's rare they get there within five minutes of the call coming in. And most people delay calling the police for a whole bunch of really good reasons. I mean, they're hurt, they can't find a phone, you know, they're, they're stunned, they have to do something else first. There's a lot of reasons for not calling 911 first, but the average call doesn't come in until at least five minutes after the crime has taken place and the bad guys run away. And so by the time they get there 10 minutes after the crime, at the very best, the bad guys had a 10 minute head start and was probably in a stolen car without a license plate number. So there's not much you could do almost all the time. And finally, when they take reports and you know, write down everything they can find about the crime, the bad guys leave so few clues that it's really unlikely that you're going to follow up. You're going to be you're able to get an arrest on the basis of the follow-up investigation. Something like 3% of all burglaries end up being resulting in arrest of the burglar. It's like 8% for robberies. It's higher for aggravated assaults, usually because the two people are too dumb to stop fighting when the police officers show up. So you know what's going on, but it's still rare. So if you just look at all the things that police officers are trying to do to prevent crime and stop it after the fact. None of these are very efficient technologies. I'm not saying we should stop doing these things, but doing more of something which isn't very efficient is not going to be very efficient. What we end up with is the following result. If you spend, if you increase the number of police officers by 10%, you will probably reduce your crime rate by something like 2%. So the 10% increase gets you a 2% reduction more or less. Now, that's the best guess anybody's got. Some people say it's much higher than that. And they're wrong, and it's easy to tell where they're wrong. Some people say there's no good, that police do no good at all, and they, they're wrong, too. And it's, it's fairly easy to identify that there's, there's some very good things that happen when police officers go off and do their job right. But it's not a very efficient in technology if we continue to do police work the way we've always done it. And police officers are really bloody expensive. Um, in real terms, well, first, Austin police officers are really bloody expensive. They are the, the last time I looked, this is 2017 data. They were the second or third highest police office, highest paid police officers of any big city in the country. Um, Columbus, Ohio, oddly, pays its police officers more in real terms than Austin does. And I think it's Phoenix is the second. We're, we're somewhere between, between staffed or Phoenix, I think. Um, it's expensive to add a police officer. You've got the salary, you've got overtime, which is almost inevitable. 
Uh, you've got uh, very, very good fringe benefits nationwide. This is the thing that happens to police officers is they get really good fringe benefits for really good reasons. They got strong unions, which are able to ensure good deals when they start talking to management. But if you add it all up, we're talking over $100,000 per police officer and a 10% increase in your police force would cost you millions and millions of dollars. If it's only going to reduce crime by a little bit, then the question is, well, how big is your crime problem? If you're in Detroit, a 10% increase in police officers is a good deal. You, you, if Detroit had any money, they ought to spring for more police officers. The reason they don't is because they haven't got any money. Flint, Michigan needs more police officers. Pittsburgh probably needs more police officers. Austin, Texas is one of the safest cities in the United States. The only place in Texas that is safer than Austin is El Paso, which freaks everybody out. <laughs> but in fact, El Paso is a really, really safe place. A very low murder rate, low assault rates, low robbery rates. I mean, this, you're, you're unlikely to get badly hurt in El Paso. If you cross the river and go to Ciudad Juarez, the world changes. But stuff happens on one side of the river, not on the other. Austin is almost as safe as El Paso is. At one point, it was the third or fourth safest city in the United States. It had the third or fourth lowest violent crime rate of any big city in the United States. Now, it, it may not be third or fourth anymore. It might be fifth or sixth, but it's still a lot safer than the average place. Um, and adding more police officers using a relatively inefficient technology to drive an already low violent crime rate down just a little bit further doesn't seem like a very good deal on its face. And when I was on the, the city council the last six years, one of the refrains of the budget was my saying, okay, you want more police officers, because they always want more police officers. Every department head wants more. Uh, and the police chief, who was on Acevedo for the last six years, said, boss, we need more, more officers. Great. Art, I, I, I'm with you, but you got to tell me, how are you going to use these officers in such a way that they're doing something other than what your current officers are doing? And how is this going to make us safer? And he never had an answer for me because he never needed one. He had six votes in his back pocket. Five in the last. I got Laura Morrison to help me out in the last one. So it was a 5-2 vote for once. But usually it was a 6-1 vote. Nobody wanted to vote against the police officers. Nobody wanted to vote against the police. But they don't have a good argument. Right now we are spending so much money on police and we're getting not so little in return, but the return associated with an increase in police is so low or so hard to demonstrate um, that it doesn't make any sense to spend any more. And I'm not going to go off into the foray about what the heck's happened over the, over the pandemic and why the police officers really have nothing whatever to do with that. This is just a different place. The short answer is, it's not short anymore, but where I started to go was spending more on police in most cities is not a good deal right now. It may have been a good deal 20 years ago, 30 years ago, when the crime rate was much, much higher and police were much less pricey. But with expensive police officers and a low crime rate, it just doesn't make any economic sense. Plus, you're not getting, I guess, uh, a lot of other benefits from spending on police and public safety in this way. This is something that I've heard from some uh, community organizers in town is um, if we're going to spend the money somewhere um, and you are getting such right. small returns, maybe on, maybe we could spend it on something that we get an additional fringe benefit from like public housing or something like that. Uh, right now, EMS would be an excellent place to spend more money. Right. 
always been saying childhood vaccinations for years. Childhood vaccinations were the, the highest benefit cost ratio you could find in local government. And certainly if we had spent a lot more money on childhood vaccinations, we'd be able to put more shots in people's arms today. Mm-hmm. And and so, you know, one thing that is, I, I think you're touching on it, but has been confusing for me is, you know, I hear a lot, uh, you know, I've read a lot of articles that say kind of what you're saying, that there's not a huge correlation between like police spending recently and uh, crime. But then I also have read and I guess you're it's kind of what you mentioned, but I've also read that there are decent studies that show that if there are more cops around that we do have less crime. Like, yeah. wh- how does that fit in? Well, it's a matter of effect size. Do, if you have more cops, will you have a lower crime rate? And best as anyone can tell, yeah, you will. If we have more prisons, we'll have a lower crime rate. Uh, if we have more jobs, we'll have a lower crime rate. If we have better paying jobs, we'll have a lower crime rate. I mean, there's a lot of things out there which we know have the ability to reduce the crime rate. But th- the question is not, do we just do them all? We haven't got the money to do them all given that we have other things besides crime that we're trying to accomplish with local government, what is the right problem to solve and what is the right way to spend money to solve the problem? And putting more money into an already pretty large and very expensive police department to solve a relative, not a minor problem. If it happens to you, of course, it's not minor, but in the grand scheme of the, the cities around the country, our problem is much more manageable than it is in almost any other big city in the United States. So is that the problem we want to spend a bunch of money to inefficiently solve, or should we find some other problem like housing, like emergency medical services, which uh, is going to be, a, we, we can come up with a, a better use of the money for. Yeah. It's the right, right way to think about it. what's the best use of the next dollar we're going to spend. Yeah. And, and, and that makes me wonder, you know, and I'm not sure if, this exists or not, but do we have an example to look at when uh, places reduce the size of their police department budget? Obviously, there's a question by how much, but I think right. that is a concern too. Folks are like, well, we do, you know, maybe if people do accept that we have a low crime rate here in town, well, that's because we have police. And, and if we lower that, what might happen to our crime rate? Is there is there studies that we can look at that might influence that decision or, or have shed some light on that? Um, there are there are some places where the police strikes, for example, or, or blue flus, uh, where for some reason the the number of police officers has gone down dramatically and quickly, and the crime rate goes up. And usually, what happens is the crime rate goes up because the bunch of bad guys are testing the situation, saying, "Hey, what can I get away with? Oh, I can get away with some stuff." And then it turns out after a couple of weeks, they can't get away with as much as they thought they did, and things taper back down again. But yeah. If, you, if we pulled every police officer off the street right now, the crime rate's going to go up. If we reduce the amount of money we spent on police, in particular if we reduce the number of police officers on the street, the crime rate's going to go up a little bit. But it's a balancing act. You know, you spend mm-hmm. the cops, you spend money on crime. And where's, where's the proper way to strike the balance right now? Given, of course, you know, we've also got you know, housing and EMS and lots and lots of other things we have to spend money on. Yeah, I, th- I think that's a good point. You make, you know, a lot of times when in this conversation where I see it get, I don't know, just we get caught in this debate where people are like, well, don't you support cops or, um, you know, do. <laughs> yeah, it just gets really 
animus or, and, and it feels like it distracts from the actual conversation that, that we're having. And I can understand why a police officer might have a visceral reaction or a police officer's family, because obviously no one wants to lose their job or have their city department budget be cut. Like that's pretty basic, but it doesn't seem like that, like that's not really the conversation we're having right now. Well, it shouldn't be. It it, it shouldn't. (laughs) Not the point. Um, Well, all right. Let me, another issue, which people often some people like to, to bring up is that being a police officer means putting your life on the line to protect the rest of us. That's absolutely true. And one of the reasons why I, and I think almost everybody who's given it much thought has a tremendous respect for police officers and firefighters. On the other hand, what's the most dangerous job in city government? It's the guy who fixes your streets, not the guy who patrols your streets. Uh, mm-hmm. Being a um, public works person who's, who's uh, responsible for street maintenance means you're actually hanging out on a street when people are driving on it and you're more likely to get run into. The majority of our deaths of city employees have been street workers followed closely by um, trash pickup guys because they're out in the streets and they're likely to get hit. Uh, and the, the mortality rate among those guys is much higher than it is among police officers and firefighters. But we don't have parades. We don't name streets after these guys. We don't make a big deal out of it when they get run over. And we don't pay them 100000 bucks a year either. And it seems to me, I mean, there's racial and class inequities involved, but there's also just TV shows. And nobody has a TV show about the guy who picks up your trash. So we don't give them as much of our bandwidth as we do to police officers. It's kind of hard to fashion a, a good TV show against the guy who picks up the trash, I guess. But that story is what we're paying for. When we're paying 100,000 bucks for a police officer and only $35,000 for the guy who picks up the trash, but it's a much more dangerous job. So Bill walked us through the basics of crime data and statistics and stressed the need for cities to look at police spending more critically especially in the context of an overall limited municipal budget. But I want to end this week's episode by getting at the larger, more existential question that's underlying all of this, which is, are crime statistics even the best measure of public safety in our community? Or at the very least, should they continue to be used as the only measure of safety? Especially considering the fact that broad swaths of our community do not feel safe or served by our current policing infrastructure? To answer this question, I wanted to share with you a clip from an interview I recorded in January with Chris Harris. You might remember him from our History of Policing episode. He's a member of the City Community Reimagining Public Safety Task Force, as well as the Director of Criminal Justice Programs at Texas Appleseed. Here's what he said when I posed that larger question to him. In reality, there, there, you know, there's I think there's a, a most accepted means of, of like going about police staffing after many years of, of utilizing now debunked methods that is based on population or, um, or you know, based on crime numbers. Um, you know, now people really are looking at, um, at the actual calls for service um, and, the, and the time spent responding to the, the various types of calls for service. Um, as the, the the sort of key signifier, and I do think that that's useful. But I also think that it's really really useful in in seeing how much of what police do today they don't need to do. It doesn't need to be done by someone uh, who's armed 
and who has the authority to use violence, coercion, and surveillance in response. Um, you know, when we look at, you know, actual 911 calls and calls for service, we see an inordinate number of them that are, are not related to even something deemed criminal activity. Um, often, you know, uh, these are, you know, what have become pejoratively referred to as like Karen calls uh, related to the mere appearance of, of people who, who don't seem to fit certain people's perceptions of who belongs in a certain place in the city, uh, but which, uh, you know, are, are tied to literally no harm and no, 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 nothing that can even be deemed a criminal offense. We also see an enormous amount that, uh, that's related to traffic. Uh, and not just traffic violations and moving violations, but but to literally managing roadways and and uh, and directing traffic, um, you know, getting stalled vehicles out of roads or moving you know dead animals out of roads, and just uh, you know an enormous number of tasks and activities that um, that just don't need to be done by individuals uh, with again a gun and and the authority to to use it. Um, and so, you know, I think what, what I'm, I'm really trying to, and I think there's a, a you know, a, a real growing effort to try to really get out of the, the, you know, the crime numbers debates. Um, also because ultimately, um, the, the, the only source for those numbers, um, with really the lone exception being murder or homicide, which, you know, we, you know, ultimately, are people find out about media or, or family report or what have you everything else the source of which is the police department themselves and so um and and what one officer and there's so much flexibility within the criminal code to deem uh, the same act as many different types of potential criminal behavior um and we see that when when folks get get jailed and and how plea bargains work and and how charges get shifted and changed so regularly um, that it, it's really, really um, difficult, if not impossible, to understand the level of safety that exists within a particular community based solely on um, the crime statistics. Um, and I say that as, you know, as someone who, who lives and works in a city where the crime statistics are, are you know, compared to other cities, you know, annually very, very good. And, it, and it's a very good argument for, uh, you know, people who are who are pushing to to say that we don't need to hire you know a lot more officers to, to um, but I think it's more important for us to look at what are people in this community actually calling nine one one for help for? How can we best provide the best help that's going to address the concerns and the situations that that people are uh, are calling about? You know how can we see where people are calling about things that don't need a response and, and actually try to educate the community uh, about you know, these not being legitimate reasons for calling 911 if, if there isn't some harm or, or something bad going on. And, and then how can we then combine that with the other, you know, again, public health and public safety uh, issues that we know exist and that may never result in a 911 call because you know, the people that are, are being victimized, um, you know, don't trust the police or, you know, are, are afraid of the police um, and, and really try to tackle all of that in the, in the best way possible. Again, that's going to actually address any harm, you know, promote healing where there is harm 
and going to try to actually solve and prevent the, the root cause of, of whatever harm might have been caused. Um, and, and really to, to get out of the back and forth of, you know, this month there was this number and that month there was this number. And that means we need this number of police um, and, and really look at what's, what, what's actually causing harm and, and how can we address that harm, promote healing, um, ensuring accountability where, where it's needed, um, and, and ultimately try to prevent um, you know, harm from coming to, to the people in our community. One last thing to add here. Earlier in this episode, I mentioned the Public Safety Vision Report, published by Measure in July of 2020. Well, in that report, they included their own definition of public safety that I found especially relevant to what we're talking about today. Here's what it says. Quote, Measure recognizes public safety and its applied metrics as holistically facilitating community engagement to improve community relations and decrease community harm. Measure defines public safety as mainly happening locally, while incorporating the frameworks and understandings of research development at the state and national levels. For Measure, public safety is a radical systems approach to the protection of life, health, and property whereby the system is a unit, totally dependent on each component, resulting in the obviation of danger to the public and the restorative community healing required to undo institutional racism. Public safety goes beyond just enforcing laws. It is foundational to community wellness by proactively seeking to reduce harm. Public safety happens by the people and for the people based in partnership between the public and institutions as mutual stakeholders in maintaining safe and functional communities." End quote. And with that, we're going to end things for today. Be sure to stick with us, because next week we'll be continuing with our series on policing in Austin by focusing on mental health. You can find podcasts of our show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and Google Podcasts. And one quick friendly request on this, if you like our show and find it useful, please consider rating, reviewing, and subscribing on your favorite podcast app. It really helps us to be seen and heard by more folks in Austin. So thank you in advance if you're able to do that for us. As always, you can learn more about The Austin Common by visiting our website at theaustincommon.com or by following us on Instagram at the underscore Austin underscore common. This show is hosted by me, Amy Sansbury, and produced by John Hoffner and broadcast via Co-op Studios, a cooperatively run community radio station based in Austin, Texas. To listen to more of KOOP's amazing lineup of shows, visit koop.org or tune in to 91.7 FM. Thanks. That's all for today. You gotta leave.